Thanks for listening. We are expecting an awesome show today, but before we get into it, you just know we've got to point you over to our website where you can find information about the upcoming conference. I like the way Ken said it in the last episode. It's the third annual Spirit Forward Conference. So you don't want to miss it. It is um, a great, great space for the practicing of the gifts, the activation of the gifts, the activation of freedom, hello, the tearing down of strongholds, yes, Um, the casting out of demons, the healing of the sick, the salvation of souls. Ooh, Uh, we said it on the podcast before, but we should say one of the highlights of the last conference was when a witch came to Jesus Christ. That, that's pretty legit stuff, right? It's true. Yeah. So uh, that's coming up September of 2023. You can register right now through our website, spiritforward.faith. And you can find some information there about lodging and things of that nature. There's no charge for this conference. Uh, oh, dude, I was looking at a church's music tour like yesterday or Monday, a couple days ago. I was looking, I was like, hey, I want to go hear this uh, church's music tour that's taking place a couple cities away, and I'm looking it up. The cheapest tickets were 50 bucks, and the most expensive tickets were $800. Wowza. (laughs) So we're not charging enough, Ken. One day, Josh, someone will (laughs) pay that much to to sit 12 feet from you, and hopefully you're... Sweat from your brow as you preach will hit them oh, and uh, activate them in whatever spiritual giftings you have. Yeah. Uh, no, hey, you know, whatever, whatever the Lord's doing in that in that church music ministry, praise praise the Lord uh, that totally. the gospel is preached. But yeah. I hear you. Yeah. Oh, and I still love their music. Uh, well, and then I jumped <laughs> on another ministry's music thing, and it and their price was only ten dollars. So yeah, we're even beating them. Zero dollars. You know, I'm grateful for our supporters. We've had a number of people that have just supported the ministry. Obviously, you and I are not paying for the ministry out of our pocket, although we are giving from our, out of our pocket to support it because we believe in it. But a lot of people support it and have made it possible for us to just say, come hang out with us and let's worship Jesus together and let's see what the Holy Spirit does. And we're just going to make space for the Holy Spirit to work and see what he does. We're going we're gonna to get in a room and we're going to say, look, we all believe that God still does this stuff today. And many of those things are needed right now in this space. So let's pray together. Let's worship Jesus together. And then let's give him space to speak, to heal, to deliver, and to save. And he does it, right? Every time we do that, whether it's been the last two Spirit Four conferences or your prayer conference, which is coming up in June, um, or things we have at the Father's house here, right? When we give space for the Lord to do stuff, he does stuff. It's funny how that works, right? Yeah. Uh, he's speaking. He just wants us to listen. Yeah. I think there is a huge matter when it, when it comes to the church's hunger and expectancy, which frankly are just different words for faith. When people show up expecting, they are confident that God is going to do something. It's when he does stuff. It's uh, when the church can offer up a sacrifice of faith. And um, to any of our listeners, if you would like to support Spirit Forward Um, conference or podcast or whatever Uh, this is probably worth mentioning that currently there's a donor who's doing matching and uh, if you were to give through the best way is going to be through the father's house church website if you can give that way hey we have a donor who's going to match your gift 
And so we don't really do much promotion in terms of talking about money, but um, there's a man led of the Lord to do that. And so maybe you could partner with him if you feel like you want to um, get behind the conference, which would help sponsor people getting to the conference, would help sponsor pastors. Um, none of us take a paycheck for preaching or anything like that. So it, it would help. God bless you. Let's get into a great episode on the gifts of the Spirit. Welcome to the Spirit Forward Podcast, a show dedicated to the teaching, discussion, and demonstration of the work of the Spirit of Jesus. God bless you, and thanks for listening. Okay, Ken, so we're coming to gifts of the Spirit that are found in Ephesians chapter number four. There's five, or debatably four, but there are five distinct gifts of the Spirit that are heavily debated and oftentimes they are called offices. So these are gifts, right, from Jesus Christ. Why would we say that these are gifts? Well, I think the NLT says it the clearest. Um, uh, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church in Ephesians 4.11. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. So... Um, I think ESV, some of the more dyna- uh, some of the more form- formal translations, right, just have a continuing sentence from previous verses, which says, "And he gave some apostles." But specifically, it seems like the Father gives spiritual gifts, right, through the Holy Spirit, and then Jesus gives these gifts to His body, the Church, uh, so that the Church can be equipped and built up as the body of Christ, and we'll continue until we come to unity in Mm. our faith and knowledge of God's Son. They must still be going on, because I don't feel like we're unified yet. We haven't quite hit that yet. Um, Somebody sent me the picture of the ladder, which is above the uh, church entrance of the Holy Holy Sepulchre in uh, Jerusalem. And uh, there's six, I think, five or six denominations that share the uh, uh, leadership oversight of the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where we're supposedly, allegedly, historically, traditionally, Jesus arose from the dead, where the tomb is. And uh, this ladder has been up there since they agreed to oversee the church. And you cannot move anything in the church unless um, every all six denominations come to agreement. And so now, hundreds of years later, the ladder remains because they can't agree to move it. At at one point, a chair was moved. A chair was moved several decades ago, and they had a fight. A fist fight broke out over a chair being moved in the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And when you go in there, it's madness. Like during the the heavy seasons of tourism, pilgrimages, people are in there, and you're thinking, how could you be upset about moving a ladder? There's there's millions of people going through this um, in a a year or two's time. So uh, just one humorous example of how we're not in unity yet yeah man so we need these gifts as much as we ever have because there's a a lack of unity man that is a great illustration the churches can't even agree to move a ladder well safe to say we need to step it up oh 
Yeah, uh, I see what you did there. That's beautiful. But hey, we hear this all the time in churches, right? Like the, the new pastor comes in and he like throws away stuff that he found in the fellowship hall that's yeah. growing mold and 30 years old. And yeah. the church, some church member gets out of shape because they remember where they donated that uh-huh. uh, out of their trash pile 30 years earlier. And then the, the turf wars of churches that, you know, share a, a, a street corner or, uh, or just happen to be in the same town, same county. Uh, man, we need unity. We need unity inside our local bodies. We need unity between our local bodies. We need unity between our denominations. We need unity amongst our national movements. God help us. We need yeah. unity. So, yeah. uh, man, the Lord gives us these gifts, and one of those reasons is to build us up and to unify us. These, these gifts are an answer to the prayer in John 17, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That they would be one. The followers of Jesus would be one, just as Jesus and the Father are one. And in order to accomplish that oneness and that unity, to be able to abide uh, together as brothers and sisters in Christ in the presence of Jesus, we need apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So I think that's the why. And uh, and the reason we call them gifts is because uh, the scriptures clearly allude that Jesus uh, gave these offices, right, um, these, these roles uh, and positions to the church so that there would be... Uh, a place for a leader to step into that could help the church carry out its task with uh, the right structure, the right leadership in place. You know, the children of Israel were never going to get out of Egypt until Moses went, and Moses wasn't going to go until Aaron went. So Moses and Aaron had to go together, and then you had the leadership in place. But then they were never going to get out of that wilderness until Moses shared leadership with the 70 and until uh, the 10 bad spies went away, the two good spies were raised up and you it got to continue. And you had these different uh, leaders that were in place for the progression of the, the nation of Israel. And you kind of see that just throughout the scriptures, like a, a horrible black mark in Israel's history is the book of Judges because you just have these random leaders. You don't have clear uh, uh, structure. And, uh, and we see that with the church today. We need to have this... Um, clearly biblical outlined structure in place so that we can grow. Amen. Yesterday I met with some pastors and one of them made a little quip. He said, if you have more than one vision, it is division. It's division. And uh, I really took that to heart. So this morning I was with some other pastors praying. We have a weekly prayer meeting and I just kind of prayed into that one. Like, I, uh, you know what? I bet God Almighty has one vision for our county. You know what I mean? Like, he, I don't think he's called all these churches to have separate visions. I think there's probably one. And, um, and so I think we need to come into alignment with the throne. And one of the ways that we come into alignment with the throne is by following the ordained leadership that's in place. And so you've already mentioned the five offices. But there's probably a lot of our listeners who have never heard a term like fivefold office. I mean, there's a huge portion of my life I wouldn't have been able to tell you what that means. The fivefold offices um, or fivefold giftings or whatever. But it's these five that are mentioned in Ephesians 4. So we've already said the purpose here is towards unity. The gifts are apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. And some people would debate and say teacher teachers like the same role, but... Nonetheless, we see these five terms that are for the body of Christ. And I guess straight out of the gate, we should start with, what, the first one? You want to talk about apostles? Yeah, I think it's important, one more clarifier by way of introduction, is just to see that 
Um, when we don't recognize these offices, people will walk in their anointing, but we won't have a clear definition for why they feel the way they do. Mm. And we often project our gifts on other people. So I come from a background um, of, of the body of Christ where it was evangelist led. So the evangelist, the, the man with the pastor evangelist mix uh, would insist that everyone else be evangelists. And he made space for teachers and he made space for pastors, but there was a heavy push on the, on evangelists. And because there weren't other people able to step up and, and protect shepherding and protect teaching, a lot of times doctrine suffered because evangelism was so heavily promoted and the people got burnt out because shepherds weren't allowed to minister to the people. So the evangelist wow. kept pushing, soul winning, soul winning, soul winning, soul winning, and that's what he's supposed to do. He's an evangelist, and God gave us that man and that passion. But the only people that could keep up with him oftentimes were other evangelists. And other people who tried to keep up, their marriages suffered, their families suffered because they weren't able to um, allow that gift mix to work together well. And also, an evangelist needs a pastor to help that evangelist not burn his own family out. Because just because you're an evangelist doesn't mean your kids are evangelists or that your wife is an evangelist. Um, so it's important to see the reason that we're prote protecting these offices is not so that we can bring back the apostle. Right? We're not trying to you know, have this hobby horse of we want to talk about apostles, so we're going to talk about all five gifts. I, look, I love <laughs> talking about apostles. Yeah. But I, I think that even if you don't have a space in your church structure for apostles, it's still important to recognize the different gift mixes that your people have um, for the unity and health of your, of your body. So if you recognize like, well, I am an evangelist, then I really need a pastor to lead with me, right? So that's the, that's the need for, for plurality of leadership. Nice. Um, you know, just understanding that there, there should be a place. You know, if you want to call it pastor and assistant pastor, great. But um, if you want to call it elders, great. That's what we do at the Father's House. And because we have elders, we have this plurality of leadership. I serve as lead pastor and first among equals is the phrase we often use. Um, but I'm, I'm held accountable and we have, I can be more visionary. I can be more nationally minded. So we have a pastor, we have a prophetic guy, we have a teacher. We have these different um, gifts that help hold me accountable, help me be more effective in my lane. And, um, and, and so far, we're learning to, to work through it. It's not perfect. We certainly haven't arrived in unity or in uh, being fully built up. But that's what we're kind of striving for and trying to understand in this season in our church. And so when you talk about spiritual gifts, if you leave Ephesians 4.11 uh, out of the conversation, then I think you've really failed because spiritual gifts are in the church. And for the church to move forward, you have to have healthy leaders. I really appreciate the attention you're bringing to excess, which just could come up in literally any conversation in the church, right? But I mean, I remember um, even as a, a, a teenager being able to identify somebody um, who was a really good pastor, but not a really great teacher. And so we might say things like that, like, oh, he's a great shepherd, not such a great preacher. On the other hand, you find people who are excellent teachers and miserable shepherds. Um, I think another component, when we broaden it to all five categories, we might say, yeah, there's somebody in the church who's extremely prophetic, but there's not a pastoral bone in their body. And um, 
you know, so we do need the mix just like a, a husband and wife need one another. Man, the members of the body need one another. So I think it's, it's excellent to keep all this balanced. And I think that it's also appropriate that sometimes a pastor gets a hold of something and maybe the pastor is really strong on intercession. And, you know, a prayer meeting might go four or five hours and not everybody is up for that. Um, another guy might want to wait on the Lord and get words of prophecy and not everybody's up for that. And so, I, yeah, I think it's super wise that you would identify and maybe our listeners could just take a moment and if you're a church leader, think to yourself, no matter how you define the church leadership, are we in balance? And are we, are we cooperating? Are we sharpening one another, making space for one another? Or are we just um, being forced into a mold? Boy, I think we've yeah, all experienced we, that. We see this gift mix uh, laid out in uh, the book of Acts. So I think we can all, whether you're a cessationist or continuationist, we can all agree that this gift mix is in action in early, in the, you know, the early chapters of Acts. Sure. You've got Peter, James, and John, and the other nine, uh, including Matthias, apparently, serving as the 12 apostles. Um, you have other prophets. Agabus will be mentioned later, but you certainly have people who are very prophetic and prophesying. You have evangelists like the deacon Philip, who becomes an evangelist. And then you have pastors, and it seems like James, the half-brother of Jesus, ser- served as a pastor. And then you have teachers. And, um, it, you know, you don't have, I don't recall off the top of my head, I don't think specific teachers that we have mentioned, but there's definitely a space for the uh, gift. I think a Luke might be a good example that we could use. I don't know if he calls himself a teacher, but he's very thorough in his um, uh, evaluation of, uh, the, of, uh, of his writing of the gospel. Uh, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course. But his writing style is very different than Mark, and he's a very thorough teacher, it seems. So you have these gifts working together. Philip goes to Samaria, and he evangelizes a city. The apostles don't go to their own cities and evangelize, but instead they go after Philip goes, and they help set up and authorize and provide authority and anointing and structure and confirmation for what Philip has done. And then behind them are going to come pastors and teachers. Paul, an apostle, sends other apostles like uh, Titus and Timothy, and they serve as pastors, but they also serve an apostolic role of planting other churches and raising up other pastors, teachers, and prophets. So at least in Acts, I think we could agree, we might disagree with with different parts of the body of Christ now and what's happening in 2023, but we could agree at first, starting in a place of of unity, since we're striving for unity in this lesson, Hmm. um, we could start there and just say, well, we all see these five offices working together in the book of Acts in the early church. So that's how we got started with these five offices. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, we'll make a case, right, that those five that those five offices still continue in some way today. But um, at least we have to start there with our origin and how it functioned in the book of Acts. So there are teachers in the book of Acts. Um, in Antioch, there were five guys that were mentioned there. It says there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. Barnabas okay, there you and go. Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Um, and I think, too, it's important to note for the cessationist who says, well, modern-day prophecy is just preaching. Well, we, I think we need to then deal with the fact that prophets and teachers are named here in chapter 13. Yeah. There are different offices. So, right. And, and there's a gift mix. I, I think that a lot of people 
who are in church leadership have a combination of two of these. Some may have a combination of three. Anybody who thinks they're all five probably needs to repent because you're not Jesus. <laughs> I know we're supposed to look like Jesus and be like Jesus, but I think if you think you're all five, uh, look, I've, I've done a little prophesying. Uh, I've done evangelism. I am a pastor. I've done a lot of teaching, right? But I know that some of those are not strengths compared to others. And uh, Compared to and other I, I strengths, sent, you're saying compared to your right. other strengths, not compared to other right. people. Right, so, so, so of those four things, right, I'm potentially stronger at two than, than the other two, especially yeah. when I see people functioning at a high level in those other roles. Like I think, well, I did a good job teaching that lesson, and then I see someone who is a high-level teacher, and I think, oh, okay, that's <laughs> yeah. what the gift of teaching looks like. That's what, a, that's what an office of teacher looks like. Whew. And uh, I, can, I can get a, a point across, but I'm almost more fatherly than – than professorly, if that's a, if that's an, an adjective you can use, um, so it's just helpful to see that and then not feel bad, like I don't feel this shame, like you know I'm just not I'm not Billy Graham. That's okay. Jesus gave Billy Graham to the American Church and many other nations, right? What yeah, a gift! Right. right. And if I am an evangelist, then I need to be the evangelist God wants me to be. Yeah. But it's okay to not be Billy Graham or to not be John Wimber or to not be. Jack Hiles, we'll, we'll cover all the uh, different uh, spaces, evangelical, Paula charismatic, White. and independent Baptist, <laughs> follow it, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's okay to, to not be those things. And a lot of people, you know, you go to, their, you go to their, their schools of study or you follow them a lot, you read their books, like, I want to be that person. And then you feel this guilt that you can't be that person. And hmm. it's because you're not seeing the arena that God's created for you. So uh, on our on our stage here at the at the church platform, we have a, a large decorative rug. And I think it's a great illustration. Like that rug, I know the boundaries of it and the authority I have when I stand on that rug. And um, and behind that pulpit, there's an authority I have. And when I step off that rug, I I leave that authority behind in many cases. And a lot of people, they don't understand the parameters that God's given them with their authority, and yet they're quick to criticize and critique and judge others how they should be handling their authority um, or to be jealous and resent, resentful that, that God won't let them operate like a Billy Graham. And the Lord says, no, I want you to understand the place that you're in and be able to define it biblically what God's called you to do. of the content that we've just discussed is super applicable kind of no matter the space that you're in i mean you might you might have a, a priest in your church for crying out loud and you can find i think application in what we're talking about here so that's really good yeah. all right yeah let's start with apostles can you give us a start off controversial real fast huh oh should we should we just talk about teachers Nah, everybody, you know, every we got we got we got hungry listeners, Josh, and everybody knows what a teacher was. We all went to school, all right. Everybody, everybody started kindergarten. So. Uh, but if we put <laughs> apostles went. last, maybe somebody will listen to the yeah. whole podcast, and you know. No, right now they're just clicking the little time bar, and they're gonna move the the oh. dot over to yeah, go find. What do these heretics say about apostles? That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay, the word apostle, it means sent one, right? So the I think the cessationist definition is there aren't any apostles. They passed off the scene. But then another cessationist definition is, well, they're just missionaries. Um, and we see missionaries functioning as apostles. Mm -hmm. 
but they often start off as evangelists, pastors, and teachers mm-hmm. and, uh, before stepping into a bigger role. So I think that the definition of missionary falls short. Um, I would include it, though, I think, personally. Sure. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a part of it um, because you are sent. Mm-hmm. You're a pioneer. You're piercing the darkness, etc. cetera. Uh, okay, here's the definition. Well, on An that apostle, note, I just want to point out to the listener, the, the word missionary is literally the word apostle. It's the Latin word. It's the same word, so it's we got It's super ironic for somebody to say, "I don't believe in apostles, but I believe in missionaries." It's the same word. That's like saying, "I don't, right. I don't believe in the church; I believe in the ecclesia." Yeah, and I think the issue is, and I see this with evangelists, I see this with other offices as well, is that people who use these terms today, they take them from scriptures. They're using a scriptural term, but they may not be functioning in the same way that that term was mm-hmm. used or defined in scripture. A lot of missionaries are simply pastors who pastor outside of their home country. So they're, you know, is the definition of missionary somebody who leaves your home country? Because that's not the definition of apostle, right? So that's, <laughs> you know, there's these different definitions. I met with a guy last year. He, uh, his, his, his grandpa was an evangelist. His dad was an evangelist. And he said, I'm going into evangelism. I feel called. Now, look at my dad. I was a pastor. My grandpa was a pastor. I get the whole complication of following family lines. So I wanted to do him a favor. We were friends. I thought I could do this. I said, cool, great. Hey, what's your definition of evangelist? And like for 15 minutes, he tried to define it. And it was like, God called you. You're quitting your job, going to evangelism, and you don't know what an evangelist is. That's a problem, right? You need to be able to define it. Because he knew that in his mind, an evangelist was what his dad used to do. Wow. What his grandpa used to do. And for me, I went through a massive identity crisis when I went and started a church because I could not be the pastor that the previous two generations of my family were. They pastored mega churches. I was starting in a place where I had no friends other than people who moved with me. Like what I was doing was totally different than taking a church of, of 15,000 and trying to get it to run 20,000. So it was, it was, it's a very different feeling. So I had to identify what my gift mix was and also what I was expected to do as a church planting pastor. And I feel like, again, a guy says, I'm going to be a missionary. In his mind, he's thinking of people he went to school with, people he, he heard preach, testimonies and stories he heard. And he's saying, I'm going to be that. Well, we can't use yeah. 21st century models as our primary definition, right? We want, we want God's power. Yeah. So we really want to go back to scriptural models. Well, it's human tendency. I mean, it's like my own testimony would be, God called me to pastor, and my response to that was, oh, good, I should go ask men how to pastor instead of asking the one who called me. And so, I mean, on the, on the topic of, like, missionaries, or, or rather on the topic of being sent, I don't think you can be an apostle if you're not sent, right? So not all, you know, who are sent are apostles, but I, I would say that an apostle has to be a sent one. And, by, yeah. you know, he would have to be a missionary in, in some respect, um, but we would say yeah. an apostle is a Christian leader, somebody who is gifted, well-taught, they are commissioned, and they are sent by God with authority to establish the foundational government of the church within an, uh, an assigned sphere of ministry. We could also say uh, a sphere of influence, which might be regional, but nowadays it might, you know, might not be uh, a geographical region. It might be some other kind of an influence. Um, yeah, and it, it, this is, it's a challenge because um, there are a lot of high-level leaders 
who they themselves may even be apostolic. Maybe we won't call them apostles, but they have an apostolic mm-hmm. um, role of leadership in their lives. And they they won't call themselves that, and they struggle with the definition. So uh, I think C. Peter Wagner, he has like a really broad de- a definition. He's a, a church historian, passed away you know a couple years ago. But, um, you know, as he did church growth consulting and traveled to thousands of churches, he came up with the idea that there were apostles in these different spheres, right? So there's Christian businessmen, Demas Shikarian of the full gospel businessmen's luncheon, like 10 million people came to Christ because of this guy who never was a pastor. So he's like, well, he serves an apostolic role, kind of like Jeremiah Lamphere in the 1860s, I think, who led the businessmen's prayer meeting in New York City, and it, it ballooned to tens of millions of people. So is this guy serving? Is he an apostle because the Lord commissioned him to start something that now reaches into hundreds of churches and touches the lives of tens of thousands of people? So there's kind of this broad definition of an apostle, who it's anybody who leads multiple uh uh, groups, right? He's not leading one group. He's leading leaders of multiple groups. Uh, D.L. Moody, right? Is D.L. Moody an, an apostle? I think he's a contemporary example of one who could be. He started multiple schools. He bridged two continents, connected with Charles Spurgeon and others. So he's got these colleges he started. He's he's moved beyond being a pastor, um, but he's not just an evangelist because he's training up leaders. He's helping plant churches, right? There's a network that comes from this man. So, um, you know, uh, you know, a real simple definition is like a, a leader of leaders in the yes. Christian realm, yeah, right? So, God yeah. raises up a leader of leaders and it could, the, the, the work can be abused. We're always skeptical of people who have apostle on their business card or as in front of their name, as they author a book, like it's just, it just makes us uncomfortable. Now, maybe the Lord told them they have to do that and they know the Lord has called them to do that. Uh, so we're not saying it's always wrong we're just saying that 99% of the time we're very uncomfortable <laughs> with hearing people yeah, the two who throw times those terms around. We've had two guys come into our church um, just from the outset claiming to be apostles. And it yeah. um, turns out they were both false apostles, you know, surprise, surprise. But then I have a, I have a friend in the next town who does uh, with like in his network, right? Like they call him apostle. He, I mean, he doesn't walk into the room and introduce himself as that but they they use that title in their context that's fine they understand what they're saying um i think that even though ken and i would definitely push for the biblical continuation of the office neither of us get hung up on titles and i think maybe that's where a lot of trouble comes from is that we have to label everything and like you know it's fine if an apostle wants to be just called a pastor or an elder. I mean, it's fine. But when you say leader of leaders, man, I, I was aware of that as a child. I mean, forever. Sure. I'm like, dude, there's pastors and then there's pastors of pastors. And you look at guys like Spurgeon and then there's modern guys that we know of today who hold massive conferences and hold tons of influence and tons of esteem and men look up to them and follow them and, and so forth. And we would say, yes, God definitely anoints men to you know lead leaders and that's a massive it's not the only component but it's a big component with apostleship yeah and every apostle that you see in the new testament they function just a little differently so you have peter the pioneer um you know he cast nets right that was he, he literally lived out the fisher of men word uh paul the builder paul did some pioneering but he did a he did structuring and governing 
um, and we see him as a builder. James the collaborator, so James in Acts 15, he oversees the apostles, right? He serves as the apostolic leader over the other apostles when they're disagreeing over the Gentiles and uh, Jew, uh, the need, the allowing of Gentiles to be saved. So he actually has a firm word as the pastor in Jerusalem and as a critical leader. And then you have John the Reformer. Um, he writes much later than his fellow apostles and, and works to set things in order. He, he deals with Gnosticism and other heresies that are coming out. And of course, the revelation of Jesus that he, that he receives and writes out serves as just an amazing um, metaphorical, powerful vision, not just for the end of the world and the apocalypse, but also for the churches of that day and age, what they needed to understand was happening in Rome. So each apostle is a different gift mix. One may be, one may be more prophetic, but still be an apostle. One may be more of a teacher and protecting doctrine like John and still be an apostle. So you have this mix of, of leader. And, um, you know, I think my grandpa, I won't call him an apostle. I say he was apostolic in the sense that he was sent uh, he left his home state. He went, came to the Midwest. He took a church running 700. It grew to 15, 20,000 on, on high day, attendance days, but it also impacted, you know, 4,000 different people were trained to go in ministry. Um, you know, hundreds of churches have been started as a direct result, and thousands of churches have had people come in who, who were under his influence. They had a network of like 15,000 churches at one point. That's a very a leader of leaders type space. And when I moved to Ohio, you know, I moved um, uh, for many reasons. And I found myself in a place where not a lot of people knew me. And I, I took my children to a Christian school that had no affiliation with my home church. And uh, I met a guy on the school board. He said, oh, yeah, I pastor a church nearby, 3,000 members. We're, uh, we're Church of Christ. And I grew up independent Baptist. And he said, you know, my life changed um, uh, in Hammond, Indiana, when I sat at, during a sermon called Fresh Oil, uh, preached by Jack Hiles. And I'm like, that's my grandpa. And uh, he said, I, I, I gave my life to Jesus and I became a minister. Uh, Jared was selling HVAC, uh, our, another elder at our church and leader of, of Spirit Forward. And uh, he was selling HVAC years ago and he ran into a guy who was Assemblies of God and he's like, my life was changed when I went to Hammond, Indiana. And I heard Jack Hiles preach on Fresh Oil, the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Tommy Barnett, who has his own pastor school for many years in Arizona and led Assemblies of God, uh, massive mega conferences. Um, he, he got set on fire by hearing uh, fresh oil. Jerry Falwell's Sunday school system was set up and church growth was set up um, as a result of the influence. So like, you have all these different movements and ministers that are touched. And uh, so to me, that's a modern contemporary example of someone filling an apostolic role whether they would ever be called an apostle or not, that's not the, that's not the issue. It's this the, someone functioning in this kind of um, gift mix. Yeah, and and when you use the term as an adjective, I think that's far more common in our conversations, um, kind of in our culture, where it's just real common for us to say, you know, to observe something and say that seems to be very apostolic, or we might say that seems to be very prophetic, or even that that person, boy, what an evangelistic person or a, a, a pastoral person. So um, I, I remember Mike Bickle basically saying the same thing, where he's not, he doesn't want to get caught up in using the, the noun as a label, but really just kind of using it as an adjective kind of kind of tends to be a little, a little safer in one respect. But I, I like, I, I think it's, my, okay, 
this is sort of like a pet peeve of mine. So I don't want to get too bent out of shape when I'm saying this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep. I'm here it for cool, you. Man. I'll give you some inner healing. Let it unload it, unload it. I We're think here for you. that both sides of the aisle really make too much of an apostle, or or they they use it in the in the wrong kind of a sense. And I, and what I mean by that is this: on one side, let's take the abusive apostolic side. Um, so this might come out of the, like the, the New Apostolic Reformation or whatever, but you might find an abusive side of it where they treat this guy like he is Moses on the mountain and he is our mediator and we have to go through him. Obviously that's an abuse and we are not in favor. Just because we are in favor of the office does not mean we're in favor of the abuse of an office, okay? So on the one end, there's an abuse that puts these quote-unquote fivefold offices, which by the way, Ephesians 4 doesn't even call them offices, but they put these five-fold offices so far up there. Like I heard a preacher straight up say, the reason there were five pillars at the front of the tabernacle is because you have to go through the five-fold office to get to Jesus. Like that's heresy, man. <laughs> Glory. We have one mediator. Okay. All right. That's enough. On the other end, there's, there's an abuse, even on the cessation side, where I think they elevate Paul and especially Paul, but the, the original apostles, to like the same authority as scripture, as, as if since Paul wrote scripture, he must have innately had the same authority in himself yeah. as scripture. And I think that's foolishness. I, Paul was bound to the scriptures the same as us. And so I think that there is a throwing out of the office because of the abuse on the one side, we have men who abuse it and they make too much out of it. On the other side, they are doing the same thing. And they're saying, well, you know, nobody these days has the same authority that Paul had. And I would say, yeah, actually they do, because Paul did not have the same authority as Scripture outside of the Scriptures that he wrote. Okay, God happened to use him to write some Scriptures, but most of the other apostles didn't even write Scripture. So there was, they, yeah. you know, Paul does not have this authority where he can walk into your church and make corrections. He only did that in the churches that he fathered. Like when, like you mentioned Acts 15 with uh, James being the leader of the council. Uh, yeah, that was James. That wasn't Paul because Paul did not father the church at Jerusalem. He came in and gave testimony to what was going on on the mission field, but he was not in charge. Um, and I think that if there's, I think that if there's space in the scriptures where Peter rebuked Apostle Peter, for example, well, Peter was not infallible, so he needed to be rebuked. Or I also think of like Diotrephes, and this is kind of a weird one, but in 3 John, Diotrephes resisted Apostle John. And, and so I think what you see is a degree of quote-unquote authority. It's, church authority is always voluntary. And, and, and what I mean by that is who, whomever comes into this church and sits under my preaching is here voluntarily. They only call me pastor voluntarily. Okay, now I'm, I don't force anyone except my children. <laughs> Nobody is forced, and, and that's the same thing as all of the offices. Um, Nobody is forced to sit underneath an apostle. And what I think is super ironic, too, is you find, I think, modern examples of apostleship or like being a leader of leaders in organizations that deny apostleship. 
okay, so some of my friends right now are kind of having a little fit with the Southern Baptist Convention. And like there's an all sorts of power struggle going on in, in this organization. Sure. And it's like these people deny apostleship, but they sure are acting like apostles. They sure are acting like this authority that they've come up with. But my case is all church authority is voluntary, and any leader who sits under another leader is there voluntarily. And I think we should not promote, like Paul, we should not elevate Paul above what the scriptures make the case to be. All right, pet peeve done. That was good. That was a good rant. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, you know, I think a lot of cessationism when it comes to spiritual gifts and to these uh, offices exists because of the abuse of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so much of that, whether it's, and, and a lot of over, um, beliefs that are over overemphasized or that are imbalanced, whether it's, um, you know, in our, our particular background, King James onlyism, right? There's a lot of responses to what the Catholic Church has done that, um, that cause these beliefs to come out. So we're, we're scared of the prophetic because of the ex-cathedra. We're scared of apostles because of popery. We are hesitant, right, to allow for some of these spiritual gifts because of the ways they, that they have been defined and misused in uh, the universal church, in the Catholic church, over the, the last, you know, 1,500 years. Uh, so Jesus doesn't, like, say, oh, you know what, I'm not going to do that anymore because it's been done poorly. Yeah. Um, we need to go back to the, the roots and see what we have. And that's what the Reformation was, recovering soteriology. <laughs> The Great Awakening was recovering sanctification, and the Pentecostal outpouring of Azusa Street and other places is the is the recovering of spirit fullness. Amen. We've had a, a century, yeah. a century now of recovering spirit fullness. So, the Lord recovers these things yeah. that are a part of the early church, and um, you know they're they're things that we want to keep digging into and keep leaning into. So, um, as far as uh, apostles go. I think it's important to note that Paul does define what makes him an apostle in 2 Corinthians. And it is a, a clear vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Acts 9, Paul is called by the Lord Jesus himself and sent. Um, there's more work that goes on. I think there's more visions of Jesus that goes on. Jesus called his 12. So if you don't believe in visions right, and dreams, then you don't have space for apostles because today Jesus is going to come down in his body. He's going to appear in a vision. And then you have the abuses of it. You've got the angelic visions that lead to these cults and, and massive idolatrous strongholds of paganism uh, like Islam and uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints. So you've, you've got abuses of visions, and we've, we've covered those in other topics. But um, the fact of the matter is that there are still people today who have a clear vision of what Jesus wants to accomplish in his church because Jesus sh- uh, showed that to them in some fashion. Yeah, and it I think very also— dramatic. I don't know that it's always that dramatic. When we're talking about Paul's qualifications, we could also point out he mentioned one time, uh, have I not seen Christ? But multiple times he mentioned his fruit— and, and that's, I think, priority that, yes, anybody can walk into your church and say, I'm here because I saw a vision of Jesus and he told me to be, okay, yeah, we got it. But, yeah, we look at fruit. We're, we're always looking at fruit. So we want to look at fruit, yeah. we, you know, which includes sufferings and, and includes people. That's not, yeah, suffering is a qualification mm-hmm. to me, mm-hmm. right? The, only qualif- the, the, the vision of Christ in his church is not the only qualification. Right. Uh, 
when people come in and say they're an apostle, you know, then you need to ask them about their suffering because Paul <laughs> described his ministry of apostleship as a ministry of suffering. He described his ministry of apostleship as a ministry of fathering. Um, not all spiritual fathers are apostles, but uh, he, he talks about, you have many teachers, you got many leaders, but you don't have many fathers. And he talks about his, his um, position of fathering. And a lot of so-called apostles today, they don't have any spiritual children. They don't have any spiritual community. They don't have any spiritual fruit. They just have a vision they tell you about. And it's like, well, you, you maybe the Lord gave you that vision, but you walked way ahead of the timing that he had for you. And you walked yourself right out of the community you were supposed to be a part of. So Paul had accountability to churches. Paul had uh, spiritual sons and incredible fruit. And he had incredible suffering. And I think a lot of people who take the gift of the office of apostle seriously are scared of it, or have a healthy fear of it, like the fear of the Lord, because they know it comes with incredible suffering, mm-hmm. persecution, yeah. criticism, betrayal. Yeah. You know, Paul's left for dead. You got, you got a whole chapter just laying out all the ways he almost died and did die in in, uh, in one case right at Lystra. So yeah, you're, you used you the a, word a vision in, of Jesus. The word influence. Uh, one of my friends yesterday brought up Second Corinthians 10. And that's where Paul basically talks about, I'm not going to step outside my influence, my God-given influence. I'm not going to step outside what God has granted to me. So again, thinking about this apostolic calling, just because you have a call of an apostle doesn't mean that's like a universal church authority thing. You don't, you know, Paul didn't say, I'm apostle over all the body of Christ. He said, I have a realm of influence. And I think, I think we can all acknowledge that. So yeah, God gave me a realm of influence and it might be a Sunday school teacher realm of influence. It might be a national platform realm of influence, but let's all just walk in that and not worry about the titles. Yeah. I think you can have a leader in the church who doesn't have a national sphere of influence, but he has a citywide sphere. Yes. And he has connections with the politicians and other spiritual leaders and government leaders. And the Lord is using him to uh, bring the, bring the city along and to, um, establish the dominion of the kingdom of Christ in that city and to win that city back for Jesus. That guy needs a pastor who is concerned about the people within the walls of the church he attends. And so that guy could be, he could be a pastor and an apostle, but he, he's going to, or fulfilling an apostolic role in his town, but he's going to need other, those other offices to help him within the walls of his church. So you might have a nationally minded guy. You might have a locally minded guy as far as his town. And he's serving that kind of sent role. God sent me here not just to build a church, but he sent me here to advance his kingdom in this community. And and that, that kind of mindset, you could say, oh, it's just nuance or semantics. But that kind of mindset is a little different than a real um, shepherd minded person who w- wants to marry and bury, you know, he wants to. Uh, um, recognize your graduating seniors and he wants to, he, you know, he just wants to carry all, care about all these pastoral things that are super vital and super, super important because sheep need to be tended to. So there's a contrast here and ne- neither one is better than the other. Like you said, apostle gets overblown. Man, pastors are cr- are critically important to the body of Christ. Teachers are critically important yes. to the body of Christ. Yeah. So all the offices yeah. uh, really matter. So we, you know, we spent uh, 90% of our time defining apostle. We better get to the other offices here. Yeah, um, so I'm going to drop a name because most of our audience probably hasn't heard of him anyways. But, you know, Alan Hood is in the next town over. And um, he, he's, he's a good friend. But when I get around him, I recognize there's this call on his life 
that is so dramatically different than mine that it almost makes him feel disconnected um, to me because I, I, I don't know if I'm exactly the Mary or Barry type of a pastor. Um, I definitely am a pastor. I am definitely a hands-on. I want to be with people. Okay, very strongly pastoral, but he is so strongly apostolic and his vision is like for the entire planet. You know, he only thinks in terms, like he hangs out with, you know, the Rick Warren level guys and they are thinking, you know, mobilizing millions of people. And I, I think in order for him to operate at that level, there just, I guess by nature, probably is lacking the, the pastoral gift. Um, and we have to have them all. Like he's, dude, he's building this awesome ministry um, in, in Fort Pierce. And if I sit here and compare myself to that, I'm going to get in a fit real quick. Um, and so because I, I think subconsciously, because you feel like somebody who is apostolic is better because we always talk about the apostle Paul yeah. and it's <laughs> right. just not right. It's just not fair to the other offices. It's not fair to the body of Christ because, um, are all apostles? No, just nope. like Paul says, do all pray in tongues? No, mm-hmm. you know, not everybody walks in these different gifts. And Paul does such a great job of speaking of the humility and the meekness that's needed. Who's the meekest man who ever lived in the Old Testament? It's Moses, right? He has this incredible authority and leadership, but he is meekly meek, right? The The scriptures define him in an almost like a, a redundant way where they, they describe his meekness as being extra meek. So he's like very humble and, and so submitted and surrendered to the Lord. And he has this incredible influence. Um, so, By the way, man, I, I have gotten over desiring what other guys have because we don't see the suffering. I I mean, like, look at Moses. Yeah, he was meek because he got beat up. (laughs) Yeah. uh, It's like constantly he he was in conflict. So, I I mean, when I look at guys and I think, yeah, it sure would be nice to pastor a thousand people. Like, I don't know. More people, more problems, you know, or whatever. Yeah, and with Moses, I mean, you think of the the absolute panic you would feel if if your whole life's cause— was wrapped up, about to be blown up by God. And you're like, you're it. Even God himself is about to blow this thing up. And you're the last soul. You're the last person in the universe who could spare these people. You talk about and just an incredible man of prayer and compassion. And uh, the Lord's like, I'm blowing him up, Moses. I'm done. And Moses is like, Lord, you need to watch your temper. <laughs> you know, it, it's, a, oh, it's a, that's a space. You talk about the meekness that he had and compassion he had for a very frustrating people. And the way the Lord allows Moses to to be, it's it's a uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, so but that's... also you and I have these conversations privately about how we see some of the apostolic guys who behave like they're Moses, you know, and we don't believe that either. We believe that to be an Old Testament model, and sure. the, you know the New Testament model, like you said, you're what did you say? First among equals. Yeah, right yeah. It, you know, I think there's a lot of guys who are who are coming out of the charismatic side of the church who are asking for reform. And they, they know some of those skeletons in their closet of that, that corner of the church, like we know ours from maybe the IFB world. And they're just calling on people to return to the gospel, but they're also calling on people who say they're apostles and are disconnected from the body. Apostles are for the building up of the body. And so, you know, if you're traveling around preaching one of your three sermons that you have all year, taking love offerings, and then spending all your time on Instagram during the week, you know, you're not, you're not an apostle. You're an influencer. You're a social Ouch, media man. influencer. You got to get in the body and minister to the body and build up the body. And you can't be a you can't be an absentee father. 
if, uh, apostles are fathers. So if you're not raising up sons, you're not an apostle. Um, yeah, dude, I don't even have Instagram, bro. Can you just chill? Yeah. Well, you're you're pastoring. I'm, I'm preaching the choir. But, you know, the idea here that, that there are people walking around with these terms, uh, yeah, with these totally. labels, and it's like, where, where's your kids at? Even your biological kids don't see you, uh, much less, your, you know, any spiritual sons or daughters that you might have. So with that in mind, speaking of Moses, we'll segue into office number two, which is that of a prophet. Again, it's a, it's a, a loaded term to call somebody a prophet, right? Um, there's a lot of baggage with it. There's a lot of false oh, yeah, prophets. We talk yes, about this in our, our stuff on prophecy. Um, even the Jesus Revolution movie recently, you know, uh, Catherine Kuhlman is yeah. uh, interviewing Lonnie Frisbee, and there's like this foreboding music in the background as <laughs> Catherine Kuhlman calls Lonnie a prophet, and you can just feel the he received the it. grimace. Oh yeah, you feel the discomfort that the film producers and the men who wrote the script felt, and they wanted you to feel as a viewer. That he received this call, this this uh, label as prophet, and that was part of the narrative that Lonnie was getting too proud, and Lonnie was going back into sin. And I get it. Yeah, that interview's but, on YouTube. Like it was pretty much verbatim, you know. So yeah. even though we're talking about a movie, like yeah, that legit happened. She, you know, are you a prophet? Well, I think I am. And again, it kind of comes back to this idea of like. We, you know, it, was he prophetic? Totally. Was he evangelistic? Totally. He looked like John the Baptist, man. He's yeah. baptizing people, uh, more more, ba- more people he's baptizing in in, a, in the ocean than all the Baptist churches in the state. I mean, <laughs> he's, he's a baptizer like John the Baptist. Was John the yeah. Baptist a prophet? Yeah. But should he have called himself a prophet? No. Did he have a hard time with authority? Yeah. Did he threaten authority with his talent and gifts and authority have a hard time with him? Yeah, right? The, the ability for the pastor and the prophet... To work together was severely hindered by yeah. their character flaws and probably by the lack of understanding of fivefold ministry, yeah. right? If he would have understood what his role was and that he needed a pastor and someone in an apostolic role, potentially you could have had a man who served for 80 years instead of died at 40, you know, losing so much of his life to to uh, yeah. abandonment and rejection issues. Well, we, you know, it's it's tragic that the commonality the in the church is that people with extraordinary giftings tend to fail cataclysmically, right? I, that's just more normal than not. Not not everybody, I mean, there are like intensely gifted people who don't fail, tragically, but it's tough when you, you know, you look at Catherine Kuhlman's life and you're like, oh my gosh, like that, what a, what a, roller coaster of a ride that was or you look at you know I, I take even like Benny Hinn I think the guy had an insane anointing from the Lord and yet like he used it for greed he used it for gain he uh, you know and so I you know it's by tough. his by his own admission yeah, right you're not absolutely you're not gossiping or passing judgment you're literally absolutely. talking yeah. about what he's repented of so I get it man I get it I, I when we look into the space where people call themselves apostles and prophets like Kuhlman did in that in that interview we look into that space and we see sin, we see erroneous doctrine, but I don't know. Let's come back to the scriptures. Let's just acknowledge Ephesians 4 says these five gifts are meant to last until there's unity in the church, which is when Jesus returns. You know, these, these are biblically sound. So uh, we'll just acknowledge that there's abuses out there and we won't, we won't let that deter us.
Okay, a New Testament prophet. This is a this is a tricky definition. Are you ready? Bring a it. New Testament prophet is one who exercises a frequent and proven gift of prophesying. There I it like is. It. I like it. Somebody who frequently uh, and effectively prophesies is fulfilling that role. Now, I think it's somebody who has authority in the church to oversee this important ministry as well. I think that's potentially uh, one way that they function. I was thinking about contemporary examples of prophets. You got the whole Trump fiasco of people prophesying Trump's going to be president and then not backing down. And then, oh, the election was rigged and yada, yada, yada. So I went back a little bit. For me, I think a proven prophetic voice is David Wilkerson, a pastor of Times Square Church. Okay. There are many prophetic words that he's given about America. He's passed away now. Uh, that he gave about America 40, 50 years ago that has come to pass. He was coming into influence during the time of the Jesus Revolution, but he didn't have anything to do with that necessarily. Um, he had his own um, connection with the youth of New York, and you've got the cross and the switchblade story. Uh, an incredible pr- prophetic pastor. He's a pastor, but you listen to some of his sermons. He's not preaching to a, a group of people in the room. He's prophesying about America, and what he says is um, strikingly accurate. The things he says that America will experience. Uh, another one who's not a pastor and uh, who will be more controversial, in my opinion, when I bring his name up, is a guy named Bob Jones. So um, most notably associated with uh, Kansas City and the International House of Prayer and not a perfect man. But, um, you know, 40 years ago, Bob Jones said that one day um, there'll be a International House of Prayer that is watched around the world by people who hold computers in their hands that are unplugged. He said, in that era, um, nations will be for homosexual marriage. And in that era, uh, women will be able to abort babies by simply taking a pill. All those things have come to pass in the last two years. Uh, and, and some 10 years ago. But this is 1983 when he said it. There were no cell phones. There was no talk of cell phones. There was no talk of a pill for abortion. There was certainly no talk of a 24-7 prayer house that was watched around the world. So this is just one of like, hundreds of long-term prophetic words that he gave that were um crazily accurate yeah so again if you google it you're gonna you're gonna read some people who just absolutely hate him and think he was a kook but um have you have you read ezekiel lately you know some prophetic guys look really crazy and uh they shouldn't do that on purpose but some guys are that way so uh, i like it's somebody who's functioned as as a as a prophetic voice effectively uh throughout their life that's how you know that they're a prophet. So you made a note um, that says a, a lot of prophets will get it wrong or miss. They'll miss it when they get outside their area of God-given influence. Um, and so like you just mentioned, a couple of guys who would be prophetic on like a national level. Uh, we, we've talked, I think, in past episodes that there are some guys who are prophetic uh, maybe at a church level or at a regional level so there are there are different levels to this and I think it's also worth noting first Corinthians 14 says all may prophesy and so we think the gift is for the church but there are going to be some that God especially anoints with an extra measure of prophecy an extra measure of passion for prophecy and an understanding of prophecy and so on and and we believe okay now that person is more like walking in a, a gift of a prophet and like all the gifts, it brings about much more accountability, much more responsibility. I mean, if you're a teacher of the word, 
you have a lot of accountability on your life. Same thing as apostles, same thing as, as prophets. And again, the more that God has called you to, um, it's going to have a varying degree of responsibility and accountability. And I like, Ken, that you have often, uh, recently you've often said that, you know, like apostles and prophets kind of need one another. And they need also, also, I think prophets need to be pastored. You know, no, who, yeah. who doesn't need to be pastored? Yeah, I think um, apostles are a little more pioneers and they, they kind of pierce the darkness and uh, the prophetic voice will help kind of steer them and hold them accountable. At the same time, the apostolic voice will provide space for the apostle to do ministry because the apostle, uh, for the prophet to do ministry because the prophet is not a pioneer in many cases. Um, and then you've got their, both of their needs for shepherding, to be healthy in their marriages and healthy with their kids and healthy in their church community. You know, even if it's a high level apostolic guy, he needs to sit in a small group or a Sunday school class or in a small prayer meeting and just be one of the people. You know, he, he's people can't just be like hanging on every word all the time, everywhere he goes. There needs to be some people who know that, you know, he needs deodorant too, and to brush his teeth in the morning, and he misses stuff, and he has bad days, and he fights with his wife, and he's not a he's not a superhero Christian. He has a cool gift, all right. But everybody has a cool gift if yeah. they use it and trust the Holy Spirit. So there needs to be connection and community, and um, and, and prophets are going to miss it because they're not infallible. Uh, they may hear the word of the Lord very clearly. They may, they may miss it on the interpretation. We talk about rules for handling prophecy in other episodes. But um, if everyone is pursuing a revelation from God that aligns with his written word and speaks to the needs of individuals in the church, there must be someone who trains and organizes that. So if you have a church culture that hears the voice of God, I think the office of, of a prophetic person in a church is to oversee that, align it, organize it. If you're going to have house rules about prophecy, have a prophetic guy who's who mature or woman who's mature that they can bring words to and, and kind of help train. And, and so I see that being a, a need in local bodies. Yeah, that's really um, good. I think that our, our, we have some elders in our church and, you know, heart of mine has been identifying what are the gifts of that elder and kind of raising him up and training him up so that ultimately as, as he's, leading it, you know it's going to be in a certain area so this guy might be an elder of worship this guy might be an elder of the prophetic ministry and and you know the, one great purpose for these particular ephesians for roles is that we are bringing order and structure into the church because we believe all may prophesy so we need structure in order to keep that biblical and godly yeah there's and and prophets aren't fortune tellers um you know they, you can't just go to them and say, what, what does God want to tell me now? Um, you, you have to be careful in, in how you treat them. And again, that's what, there's a lot of misconceptions there uh, about them. Uh, so I think the best way to identify if a guy is prophetic or not is to see his, how he has interacted with his local church community for mm. uh, his life and development of that gift. And then the Lord may give him additional influence to prophesy before kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers. There's guys oh, who do yeah. that. And we need guys who do that. But there's guys who want to do it and aren't qualified to do it because they won't prophesy to the widows and to the poor and to the the uh, introverts in their church. And uh, so they need to be willing to listen and pray for those people before they try to, you know, cross the pond and have a prophetic word for the newly coronated king. Uh, so I think it's uh, <laughs> it's vital. Uh, next well, office. Um, I think the final note I would make there is one of the reasons for the uh, Trump 
prophecy debacle is because a whole lot of people who have given prophecies were like suddenly expected to have one on hand. I think there's other routines where you see like, a, you know, in certain churches, they are expected to have a word for the year. You know, this is the word of the Lord for this year. And, and when there's certain expectations, I mean, we're not going to put expectations on the Lord to speak, you know, the way we want him to speak or, or whatever have you. So I think when those bad expectations are in place, men are pressured into speaking when they don't actually have a word, which is grievous, and they should repent for that. But I would say, like, yeah, there's there's bad expectations in place of the church that we should put in check. Yeah, if they had a pastor and a teacher, Whoa. the pastor could help them with their spirit. The teacher could teach them about what the Bible says about prophecy. Gosh, man, all pro- and you that know what? would be work, prophets, would work beautifully. They just need us, you know. They just need Josh and Ken, really. Wow. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think a great teacher. Uh, is uh, R.T. Kendall. His book, Prophetic Integrity, is a great book that helps. It's it's written to the Spirit-filled church. It's like, hey, oh, if you're a prophet, you should read this, and you should see what the scriptures say, and you should be very careful about entitlement and assumption. Just because you heard a voice, assuming it was God, not testing it, just because you were accurate yesterday doesn't entitle you to break the rules today. And uh, and so he he's like, you all predicted Trump to be president, and none of you predicted COVID. He's like, so, you know, clearly, <laughs> clearly these national prophets, um, they're living in an era where God's not speaking and the word of the Lord is rare. And yet they're talking like he's like he's just downloading everything to them. And so there are accurate, restrained, biblical, community connected uh, national prophetic voices today. But a lot of the guys who say they are that they're not because yeah, you can't find what church they're in and all that. That's so. the nature of publications, right? Because I bet you there was some prophet somewhere who was told about COVID. And I, I guarantee like there are in God's kingdom somewhere, God is speaking to these people, but they don't have the platform. They don't have, you know, they're not in with the major publishers. And, that's, you know, that goes the same for like preachers and whatnot. So I, I will just guard those expectations of, of like publications, but man, we got to keep moving. How about pastors? Let's, should we talk about pastors? Well, well, I have evangelists next here in my list, my you got list it. here. Yeah, you're right. So the gift of evangelists is the special ability that God gives to certain members of the body to share the gospel uh, with unbelievers in such a way that men and women become Jesus's disciples. So uh, Philip's the great biblical example of that. He goes to Samaria and he turns the city upside down. Um, goes to the Ethiopian eunuch, whether it's one-on-one or one-on-10,000, it seems like Philip was very effective in doing that. I think uh, uh, the contemporary example, obviously the easy one's Billy Graham. Some might argue that D.L. Moody belongs in this category, that he went from being a pastor to being an evangelist. I'm not going to argue, but uh, you know, John Wesley, George Whitfield, some of those names we've talked about in other episodes for other reasons, they also served in that evangelist mode. They bring about revival. Um, uh, I think it's Duncan Campbell, if I remember right, who's a part of the the, um, the Hebrides revival, and and so they they brought evangelists in, and and things took off. Our spirit-filled friends will appreciate a, a shout out for Randy Clark and the Toronto Toronto Blessing, right? Um, or uh, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but a, a guy at the Brownsville, Steve Hill at the Brownsville, right? There was an evangelist who kind of was a spark for revival, and um, and so they're not pastors, but they just they see tons of fruit, people being saved, just coming in the church, 
You know, it's somebody watered and somebody, you know, planted the seed, somebody watered, and then God uses an evangelist for all the increase. All of a sudden, the aisles are full. Billy Grant, uh, Billy Sunday, right? The sawdust aisle, people coming down and shaking Billy's hand and receiving Jesus Christ. Um, you know, like six million people in D.L. Moody's ministry, eight million people in, uh, in, uh, Billy Sunday's ministry, and then uh, around the world, we're just using American examples. Uh, Reinhard Bonnke in Africa, hmm. my goodness, you know, like 53 million people heard him preach the gospel. Um, so th there's these guys who just the Lord gives them influence and grace and favor. He packs stadiums. He 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 rallies cities. Yeah. He brings and, unity well, to churches. Th those are some of the largest examples. Um, my wife was saved as a teen girl at a youth rally back in Indiana we'd have these like fall harvest rallies and you'd run through the corn mazes and it was awesome you know bobbing for apples and all the cool stuff and uh, an evangelist named Tom Farrell preached and she got saved um, Tom would preach at our college or all across the IFB and it's like how is it that this guy gives the same exact gospel as others even including other evangelists right and yet dozens will walk the aisle to be born again and um and so there is just this clear as day anointing on an evangelist. I, I like in Romans 1 where it says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And, and to me, I think there's some component there that um, you can say something that somebody else says and like the gift of God on your life can sort of get that message across from your faith to their faith, from your heart to their heart, from your spirit to their spirit. So it's like, you know, every pastor has to deal with that where it's like you've been teaching people over and over and over and then some guest preacher comes in and suddenly the light comes on and the pastor has to just swallow his pride and say well praise the lord you know god yeah. used that evangelist to speak to their faith so there's some kind of a component and i think that when you talk about all of the gifts of the church there's a there's a failure when we confuse maybe a natural gift or a natural disposition with like a spiritual one so somebody might be a really excellent and eloquent um, public speaker. That does not mean that they have that gift of evangelism. Somebody might be a great business administrator, but that might that might not be the same thing as the spiritual gift of administration. So I think that we need to be attentive. And I tend to use Romans 1 where it's just this faith-to-faith -faith ministry, that there's a man ministering in faith, the gift of administration or the gift of evangelist or the gift of, you know, apostleship or whatever. It's like, it's a, it's a faith-level operation. Yeah. Evangelists are harvesters, and uh, they're the answer to God's prayer for laborers in the harvest. Send us laborers in the harvest, and the Lord says, I'll send you, I'll send you uh, evangelists. Uh, okay, pastors. Um, by the way, I think there's a lot of guys, back to evangelists, who they travel and they speak at churches, and they're not fulfilling the role of evangelists. They're itinerant speakers. And, um, you know, that's that's something where the I think the Lord needs to, to put his favor and anointing on them to, to really step in that role that God has. Yeah, if that's the called role. I mean, maybe they need yeah. to decide, oh, I'm an itinerant teacher. And that's there great. We need that. But yep. if you're called to evangelism, yeah, we should pray for that. Dude, I heard something a couple of days ago. Somebody asked Charles Spurgeon, um, how is it that you can give the gospel and so many people come to the Lord? And when I give the gospel, nobody's coming to be, to be saved. And he said... Well, do you believe that people will be saved when you give the gospel? In other words, are you giving the gospel in faith? 
or are you giving the gospel expecting zero harvest over and over and over? So again, coming back to this idea of operating in the realm of faith, maybe there are some evangelists who uh, need to say, you know, I, I just believe the Lord has a call on my life for the gospel, and I believe that what I say is going to bear fruit. And I don't know, maybe somebody needs to engage in faith in their particular office. Okay, now we can go on to pastors. Pastor has a special ability that God gives to certain members of the body to assume a, lo- to assume a long-term personal responsibility for the spiritual welfare of a group of believers. They can watch and care for the souls of a flock and hang in there week in, week out. Some guys pastor and hate it because they're not pastors. And they're just there and they, they can't handle the phone calls. They can't handle the expectation of a sermon every week. They can't, or three sermons every week. They can't handle some of these really common responsibilities that every pastor should have. But they just thought they were supposed to be a pastor because they feel called to ministry. And uh, so there's, there's a, uh, a willingness to be with the family and week in, week out, in season, out of season, as Paul would say, right? Uh, to be with the same group of people and to love them and nurture them and disciple them uh, and let the sheep bite them and kick them sometimes, and, and, uh, uh, w- which sometimes come, comes with a job. And another time, just enjoy the fruit of their labors as the sheep reproduce and bring more sheep in. So uh, it's that long-term, I think, a New Testament example, uh, potentially is Timothy or James. But Timothy is in Ephesus for a long time, from, from what we can see, and he brings the, about an incredible change in the city. Where Paul served an apostolic and maybe evangelistic role, Timothy comes in as a pastor. He raises up other pastors, so there's an apostolic part in his, in his gift mix, but Ephesus totally changes. And you've got um, the breakthrough, the destruction of the Temple of Diana, and the um, massive growth of the church at Ephesus. Uh, there's many contemporary examples. I picked one that we're not connected to personally. Uh, in uh, Jim Cimbala from the Brooklyn Tabernacle, I think if you read Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, or Fresh Faith, Fresh Power, some of the books he's written, Fan the Flame is, is his latest book, and you just hear the stories of people on the street in Brooklyn that they brought in and turned into servants of God, saw transformation in their lives, um, and just stayed there and faithfully labored when a little, when God was only saving by a few, and now when God's saving by many, and I think that's a great example of many, where um, a, a guy was just pastoring where he was at and making an impact. To my pastor brothers, I want to speak some freedom into your life. Ken mentioned that there are some guys pastoring who hate it. Uh, number one, there is a possibility you're not called to be a pastor, um, and, and maybe that is the case, uh, and you should move into whatever God has called you to be, but. If you are called to be a pastor and you do hate it and you feel like you don't fit in, that could very well be because you are trying to pastor like other men pastor. And the call to liberty is that the Lord has given you a wonderful package of gifts and desires that go hand in hand. And when you pastor the way that God has fashioned you, that there will be great fulfillment in that. And uh, some of the most fulfilled pastors are walking in their callings and they look dramatically different than their friends. And I don't have too many friends that pastor the way I do. And that's okay. I sat with several yesterday who are just so different than me. And um, 
and there's always a tendency to compare. And so I looked at them and I'm like, man, he pastors like, you know, X number of people. He, he, he has X number of outlets and, and, and yet it's like, whoa, 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 you know, chill out. And if I actually think about it, I would not want to pastor their church. I would not want to have their role. That doesn't fit my desires. It doesn't fit right. who I am. Like I get to pastor according to the desires of my heart. And, uh, and so if you're a pastor strapped down by your denomination, or if you think you're strapped down by your flock or whoever is strapping you down, man, like, let it go. Step into Jesus's calling because it is going to fulfill. I mean, like Jesus's callings, um, fulfill. Hallelujah. Don't yeah, pastor man. by comparison. I love that. Um, yeah. last office is teacher. Teachers communicate information relevant to the health and ministry of the body and its members in such a way that they learn, right? A great mm -hmm. teacher doesn't just know what he's talking about, but he's able to transfer it to people so that they know what he's talking about and uh, takes complicated topics and makes it digestible and under uh, and receivable. So we need that in the body, right? Commentators and um, uh just different uh, professors. There's there's so many different people who have been able to communicate. I think Jack Deere uh, has been this for a lot of people. He was a pastor. He's been a professor, and uh, he's able to been able to help a lot of people. Wayne Grudem with his systematic theology. Um, in the cessationist world, John MacArthur, his commentaries. Right. He's he's been able. He's a pastor, but he's been able to uh, transfer a ton of Bible background information that's helped so many people. So I think there's many examples. You mentioned Acts 13, uh, the five names there uh, as being teachers, and then the Apostle Luke also serving in kind of a teacher role, giving us Luke and Acts, a historian, but a teacher in that sense. So um, while nearly all pastors teach, teachers are different than pastors in that they can be content-oriented, uh, motivation-oriented, or task-oriented, whereas pastors typically are people-oriented. So I think there's a distinction that helps because a lot of people function as a pastor teacher yeah, and a lot of pastors assume that that's their mix. I think a cool kind of a comparison is uh, I want to take Michael Heiser and Tim Mackey because they, virtually they're teaching the same content. They, they have kind of the same set of beliefs um, and yet the, their outlet for teaching is quite different. Um, so I think, I think Heiser with his authorship, it was wonderful. His books are really fantastic. Not not remotely pastoral, <laughs> right? But awesome in teaching. And then he's even done the fiction work, like C.S. Lewis teaching scholarship through fiction uh, has been an awesome outlet for his teaching gift. Okay, then we circle around to Tim Mackey, who's trying to convey the same information. And yet, you know, he ha God has kind of uh, anointed him with the, with grabbing hold of YouTube with the animated uh, videos and things of that nature. And so you can kind of see how, um, and, and Tim has a much, much, much bigger reach than Heiser did. Um, so you can kind of just see how God touches different teachers in different ways. They might have the same exact content. And yet some people are going to say, oh, I, I really like this scholarly guy over here, or I really like the cartoon guy over there. And, and there's great space yeah. for, for all of that. I think that's a big point, though, for defending the role of apostle and prophet. We all know that there are teachers who are night and day different, but they they serve effectively in the body of Christ mm. as teachers. 
Okay, yeah. And we know there's pastors that way. But when it comes to apostles, it's very narrow. They have to look like Paul or they're not an apostle. <laughs> and so it's almost impossible. But we know that pastors and teachers look wildly different. And evangelists look, look wildly different. So we should allow for a little bit of space for someone who's apostolic maybe to not look exactly like the Apostle Paul, but they are um, biblical, community-centered, you know, all the, the things that need to be checked off, but we allow for them to have a personality and to be a little different. And, and I would say the same with those who are prophetic. So I, I like that point that you're making there of just the, the vast difference and how, um, how their personality and, and their uniqueness that God made them to be um, how, it, how it's used in, uh, in the church. So in a healthy church, you're going to have a guy, an evangelist, who's like, we got to win souls. 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 And you're going to have a pastor who's like, well, we got to be mindful of the people. they got schedules. they got kids. they got jobs. You're going to have a teacher who says, if we're going to win souls, let's make sure that it's not easy believism. And uh, let's make sure that we don't go over their head. Let's make sure we tell them this. And you're going to have a prophetic guy who's going to say, well, yeah, and you know what? When we start winning souls, we should go in this direction of the city and go to this town because this is where God wants us to, to start ministry first. And you're going to have an apostolic one who's going to have brokered relationships for those things to take place or who's going to have been the one who got those other four offices together in the first place, right? And if it's just one of those people, then the pastor, they never evangelize because the pastor's like, I just want you guys to, you know, be safe and be comfortable and be cared for. And they never evangelize. So just seeing how they work together in a church, I think it's critical. And when you hear that and you see that, to me, it makes perfect sense. Like, man, churches need this. Churches yeah. need all these offices yeah. to work together. Is every church going to have an apostolic guy? Probably not. No. Um, but, uh, but an established church, it still needs these offices, some mix of these offices working together for balance and for health. Well, and I think too, if we get out of our own territorialism and we start thinking about my city or my zip code, you know, my, my region, whatever that region looks like for you. Um, I, I think if you start considering who in my city is the prophetic man, who in my city is winning souls left and right, you know, we can start considering like, we are all the church. Okay. It's not just who's under my roof right here. And so when I can consider like, hmm, there's some organizers, there's some leadership in the city, there's some pastors, probably a lot of pastors in the city. But um, I think I think if we kind of get outside, I agree with you that our church should have as much of the giftings as possible. But right. I think it's bigger than one local congregation. Yeah. Yeah. The letters that Paul wrote were to like the church in the city. Right. And now, you know, it's going to be it would be a lot harder for Paul to write a letter to the church in the city. It'd be like, you know, yeah. 17 denominations and 170 churches in, in a township of 25,000 people. He, you know, he has to write a lot That's of different true. letters because there, because there's not unity. So I think well, your, and maybe your point that, is. It, maybe a part of that is because we all submit to a different form of apostleship. Okay. And what I mean yeah. by that is like my apostleship happens to be the Baptist. I go to the Baptist conferences. I, I listen to the, I read the Baptist books. And this guy over here is like with the Presbyterian apostleship and we, you know, I, we might not even call it apostleship, but we're submitting into different ecosystems. And right. so we're coming under this leadership and they're coming under that leadership and we don't ever communicate. But probably in your city, you would find these five offices or gifts. It's interesting that a call to unity today um, by a Christian is met with this skepticism and this accusation oh, yeah. of, oh, you're calling for unity. You're probably part of the one world yeah. movement. And it's like, Big time. Jesus called for unity. 
right? We're we're still supposed to call for unity amongst believers and yeah. and and be together for the gospel, um, and and continue to strive together because this is what the Lord called us to do. Man, so, when I talk to pastors in my city, I don't even use the word unity anymore. I mean, for one, there's a big fat Unitarian church right in the middle. But, yeah. you know, we don't use the term unity. I, I try to just talk about togetherness. Okay, hey, can we get coffee together? Can we pray together? How can we work together? Can we do children's ministry together? I don't know. I just, Come on. We don't. I try to use. I try That's to so apostolic of you, Josh. That's great. I love it. Oh. <laughs> Put it on your business card. Oh, boy. Man. Uh, well, hey, if you're liking this, to all our listeners who've stuck with us, if you're enjoying this, you're going to enjoy Spirit Forward uh, 2023 in Georgia. Absolutely. So uh, I hope you'll like and share and subscribe, but I also hope you'll jump over to spiritforward.faith and register for the conference. Um, you never know. We might even mail you a hat if you uh, if you register. Uh, hey. we, just, we really, really <laughs> are excited about what God's doing. And if you support Spirit Forward financially, maybe like of the 50 names that we dropped today, potentially we could bring in one of those really great speakers in the future. But for now, it's a nameless and faceless Spirit Forward group. So no hey, Wayne Grudem. God can do no so Jim much. Simulage. He can do so much when nobody cares who gets the credit. So uh, it's, it's going to be great. Yeah. One, one day, man. Jim Simbala at Spirit Forward Conference. Come on. We shall see. I love it. All right. Love you guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, God bless you. Thanks for listening. For more resources, please visit spiritforward.faith. And until next time, may God bless you in Jesus' mighty name.